Chapter Two of Two Sides to Every Question by Maud Jean Frank. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. The Home of Wealth. In a bijou of a greenhouse, small but perfect of its kind, redolent with rich perfume and aromatic fragrance, and glowing with rare beauty, Elsie Clinton was engaged one morning, a lovely balmy summer morning, in attending to her flowers. Above her, and over the glass dome, trailed a magnificent passion-flower vine, its deep green leaves and glorious blossoms throwing an oriental radiance over the whole. Rare bell-like flowers hung amidst their drapery from the doorways and slender pillars, even veiling the crystal sides of their bower. Lovely roses of all the fairest hues, treasures from other lands, cup-like, bell-like, of rare size and form, rose on every side, or clustered in lovely groups. Camellias, rose-hued or white, soft and waxen, and fuchsias of noble presence were there, with many smaller gems of beauty that needed to be sought after by their sweet perfume. And in the midst, a small fountain threw up jets of water from the heart of a stone lily. Stained glass in the doors scattered deep shades of crimson and blue and amber over the ground, adding to the beauty, while half hidden amid the leaves, the sweet trill of canaries filled the air with melody, laden as it was already with perfume. Wandering up and down among the flowers, touching them with loving fingers, her little white hands fluttering over the rare blossoms, removing the fading leaves and flowers, and throwing soft showers over the thirsty plants from the rose of a tiny green watering pot, Elsie Clinton looked the genius of the place. The soft, simple white morning robe with its fine embroidery could not conceal the beauty of her slender, graceful figure, so flexile and willow-like, such as we rarely see, and yet have seen more than once, even in South Australia. The face was delicately moulded and very fair, almost too colourless, but the eyes were a deep blue, and the hair was very lovely, magnificently long and light, and silky in its textures as it flowed over her shoulders in soft ripples, only restrained by a blue ribbon. She had many times replenished her little can at the fountain, and the flowers with their background of feathery ferns were glistening with drops and breathing fresh fragrance when a feeling of consciousness, that peculiar mesmeric influence that is so rife among us, made her suddenly turn towards the door, and then start forwards with extended hands and a bright smile to welcome the intruder. "'Arthur, why, who would have dreamt of seeing you this time in the morning? You surely did not expect to find Papa here.' "'Scarcely that, Elsie, since I left him in the office an hour ago,' was the laughing reply. "'Are you sorry to see me?' "'Of course not. That is, if nothing is the matter, if it is all right in town.' And a shadow of anxiety crossed the fair brow, and sent a deeper tinge to her cheek. "'All is right. Could not I take a holiday once in a way?' "'Have you?' And the smile again became bright. "'Have you come to take me for a ride?' "'No, Elsie, darling, I wish I could. "'Unfortunately, we are too busy for that. "'No. The fact is I had to take a message to Mr. Sackville's from Uncle. "'He's not in town today, ill or something of the kind, "'and it was too sore a temptation to be within half a mile of my little cousin "'and to come no farther. "'But you cannot stay long now.' "'And something very like a pout curled Elsie's rosy lips. "'Well, no, it's hard lines, but I can't.' We are so horribly busy just now, and are one or two hands short. My orders were to be back as soon as possible. I shall have to ride fast to make up the time. 
but i wouldn't have missed the picture i saw a short time since for anything he added with a meaning smile as he took possession of the watering pot elsie was again refilling and hung it beyond her reach a picture what do you mean you are always speaking in enigmas arthur but the blush and half-conscious smile betrayed that it was not entirely an enigma to her and she did not pursue the inquiry but suffered him to lead her out of the greenhouse carefully closing the doors behind them you must have luncheon with me before you go she continued as they walked side by side over the lawn with its rich borders of flowers and up the broad flight on to the veranda upon which the doors of the morning-room opened mamma is out and has taken lily with her so i am quite alone and i do hate lunching alone so much the better replied arthur answering the former part of the sentence but really dear elsie you must not tempt me too much i ought at this moment to be far back on my way to town what excuse can i make you know it would be worse than none to say i had been here uncle would be outrageous you cannot go without something to eat she answered decidedly i declare it is too bad and i am so lonely and she began flitting about the table rearranging the tray which was already awaiting her pleasure first ringing a little silver bell for renewed supplies elsie's home was a home of luxury a home of soft carpets and rich curtains and splendid furniture and how fitted she seemed to reign over all arthur delta thought this with a sigh of pain for he was comparatively poor earning only the salary of a clerk in his uncle's office and he deeply loved his cousin how could he ever dare to ask her from her father how had he even dared to ask herself dared no he had scarcely dared that in words and yet they understood each other it was no secret between them in heart if not in words they were betrothed elsie clinton's father was a prosperous and a proud man he had made his own position in the land of his adoption and had forgotten his origin what signified that when he counted his wealth by thousands lived in the midst of luxury and rode in his own carriage he was but half educated his wife was even less so but his two fair daughters were accomplished as well as fair they inherited his own comeliness of form and face particularly elsie the eldest who was very lovely we said he was only half educated but as far as pounds shillings and pence went his education was perfection and his business tact was wonderful with him money gathered accumulated rolled into his coffers every speculation seemed to prosper every outlay to yield sevenfold increase it is so with some men they have a genius for obtaining wealth it is a natural gift a birthright like the fabled king midas everything they touch turns to gold they are fortune's favourites where other men fail they prosper where others sink they swim they cannot stay their prosperity if they wish to do so in spite of themselves they must progress so at least it seems to us who look on and observe but it too frequently happens that these favourites of fortune from their exalted height look down with contempt on the struggling ones at their feet taunting them with their non-success while vaunting their own superior powers non-success in their estimation is little less than crime they conclude a man to be a fool if he does not get on and set down every failure to imbecility and want of brain mr clinton was not one whit behind his compeers on this score as his nephew arthur delta knew to his cost 
the cost of his feelings. He had plenty to bear at times, if not so much on his own account, on his father's, and the words wounded deeply, so deeply, that had it not been for his cousin Elsie, and his love for her, he would not have endured it without bitter retort. As it was, memory of her taught him to bear in silence, made a coward of him, as he said to himself, and curbed the proud blood that coursed in his veins. Robert Clinton had two sisters. The eldest, a girl after his own heart, had married early in life for a fortune. Any other sentiment was out of the question. She had all her brother's love for acquisition, and a good share of his talent for acquiring. There had been no question in any direction respecting the happiness of the marriage. It was expedient, that was surely enough, and perhaps it was to a woman who valued wealth and its surroundings beyond everything else. It was a splendid match, so the world said, and so said her brother. He had already commenced the rolling over and over of his capital, and turning what he touched to gold on his own account, and he gloried nearly as much in her possessions as he did in his own. But his youngest sister, and she had been a favourite sister too, though so unlike himself, whose delicate beauty had led him to prophesy great things for her, disgraced them all by throwing on one side a fortune and marrying the poor curate of a little country village. A poor, mean-spirited fellow, who had not a thought beyond his books, nor a talent outside his curacy, who never had made or could or would make money, but would remain poor to the end of the chapter. This was Robert Clinton's verdict. Poor he certainly did remain, poorer still when as years went by a son and three daughters were added to the household. They were very happy for all that, and in their deepest need Annie never regretted the wealth she had slighted or the choice she had made. What to do with the future of his boy, a boy no longer, had troubled the good curate not a little. Times of sickness had fallen upon himself and his children, and something must be done, he knew, to remedy this. As a last resource, Mrs. Delta wrote to her successful merchant brother in Australia, asking his assistance. His answer was prompt, but cold and hard, for during all these years he had cherished resentment, and though the assistance it brought was far beyond her expectation, the tears welled from her eyes and ran over her pale cheeks, for the manner of the bestowal neutralised much of its worth. What need to bring up the old sad grievance, or taunt her with what she might have been, and with what she was? What right had he to speak to her of her husband in the terms he had done, her dear unselfish, unworldly husband, who forgot his own welfare so much in his care for others? She could fain have returned the letter, and refused the deed of the gift, but a sight of that husband in his rusty black coat, with his pale cheeks and hollow cough, the thought of the three delicate girls, and of her son especially, on whose future so much depended, finally decided her. After all, she thought, her brother had a right to his own opinions, and he had certainly acted munificently in sending a hundred a year upon her, in addition to one hundred for present needs. This would free them from all of their difficulties, she joyfully thought. Her husband might go for a change to the seaside to regain his strength, and the burden would be lifted from his shoulders. Above all was the prospect opened up for her boy, though it was very hard to be resigned to the parting. "'I can do nothing for him at home,' wrote Robert Clinton. "'Send him over to me, and I will take him into the office at a liberal salary. 
If you consent to this, draw upon my bankers for his passage money and outfit, and ship him at once. So Arthur Delta, with many tears and prayers, was consigned to his long voyage and future home in Australia. The parting from all he loved was a hard struggle, and he felt it keenly. But with all the life and buoyancy of young manhood in his veins, he hailed with joy fresh experiences, new scenes, and fresh, earnest work. He was not greatly prepossessed in his uncle's favour, and therefore his reception did not disappoint him. That he was not a Clinton, but a decided Delta, as his black eyes and dark curly hair bore testimony, was nothing in his behalf, and certainly added nothing to the warmth of his welcome. But his cousins, Elsie and Lily, had no such feelings to contend against. That he was a gentleman, well-educated, and exceedingly good-looking, was quite sufficient passport for them, and they gave him a glad welcome accordingly. Months had flown by since then, and gradually a different state of things had ensued. Arthur became suddenly aware that he was doing a very unwise thing, fostering a very uncousinly love for the fairest of the two sisters. He was on enchanted and very dangerous ground. For a time after his first arrival in the colony, he had made his home at Clinton Park. A great remove it had been from the neat little ivy-covered cottage in which he had grown up in old England. What a beautiful place he thought it when he first drove up the broad avenue in his uncle's carriage, and caught a glimpse of its white pillars through the clusters of trees that stood round it. Wealth and munificence, it betrayed itself in every item. A noble flight of stone steps, surmounted on either side by beautiful flowering shrubs in Egyptian urns, led up to the broad piazza that swept round the house, large bow windows of plate glass and of magnificent size, a spacious hall well furnished, and within velvet-piled carpets, silken damask, soft fleecy mats, splendid mirrors, exquisite engravings. To live amidst all these luxuries and refinements, to one who had only been accustomed to the simple and unpretending ways of a country home, to the unadorned furnishing and meagre plenishing afforded by limited means and straitened circumstances, it seemed at first a new and beautiful thing. But after a time, when he knew himself better, when he began to comprehend the feelings with which he was regarding his cousin, he began also to hate the splendour of her home, regarding it, as he did, a serious barrier to all his hopes. What had he to offer her in exchange for her beautiful home? How could he ask her to share his poverty? For though his salary was ample, it appeared poverty to him by the mere contrast. How circumstances change our ideas of these things sometimes! He thought all this as he sat in that pleasant morning room with a luncheon before him that might have tempted an anchorite. Choice wine and richly cut decanters sparkled at his side, but it was warm, and champagne foamed in thin glasses of icy coolness. The fumes of the champagne only added to the confusion of his brain. They did not raise his spirits. How lovely Elsie looked with her soft silken hair and her fair delicate face. It seemed almost sacrilege to imagine her in a lower sphere. When he looked at her, he remembered the fate of a beautiful camellia that he had once been presented with. It came from the sheltered walls of a conservatory and was transplanted to the cottage window. It was tenderly nurtured there, but it would not do. The fair blossom withered and drooped and died. "'Oh, Elsie!' he exclaimed, as shivering with the thought and the association he rose to his feet. "'If I could only learn the secret of success, like your father, 
if i could only make money faster a delicate blush stole into her face and a soft light into her eye had she guessed the reason for his wish succeed she echoed with a musical laugh of course you will succeed i do not see why you should not why don't you buy shares in some mine see what wealth papa has gained in that way i don't know much about these things but i've heard papa talk to his friends and you must have heard too how he doubles and trebles his money that way and why shouldn't you why should he not so he asked himself as he sprang with new elasticity upon his horse shortly after and rode rapidly townwards he had a nice little sum in the bank a little one to be sure yet enough to buy a few shares if he could only find a good opening for the speculation true he intended to have sent a christmas present home to his mother if he speculated that must wait but he could do better for her by and by he might double and treble the sum and then the little spark had touched the train and fair hands had applied it End of chapter two